Let's turn our attention to God's word and let's read the text that we will study together this morning. We're going to read Zephaniah chapter 2 beginning from verse 5 and this morning we'll go all the way through chapter 3 and verse 8. So let's begin our time by reading from God's word. Would you look down at your copy of God's word and let's read chapter 2 beginning in verse 5. God's word says this. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Carathites. The word of Yahweh is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon, they shall lie down at evening. For Yahweh their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them and, sur- and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the house of Yahweh of hosts. Yahweh will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herd shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts, even the owl and hedgehog shall lie in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lives securely and said in her heart, I am, and there's no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. Woe to her, who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She does not trust in Yahweh. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. Yahweh within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each day he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares Yahweh, for the day when I raise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. This is the word of God. In his classic novel, John Kennedy Toole, the novel's name is confederacy of dunces it's all about this incredibly self-important wild protagonist in that novel he the protagonist utters this really remarkable line 
he says, I mingle with my peers or no one, and since I have no peers, I mingle with no one. That kind of self-indulgent, self-important attitude is very funny in fiction, but deadly serious in real life. Because the scripture proclaimed from the beginning to the end this axiomatic truth that God alone is exalted. That in fact it's God alone who is in a category all to himself. In contrast to the ever-present tendency of human beings to exalt themselves, God says he alone is exalted and will share his glory with no one. From the beginning to end we see this in scripture. A classic location in the scripture where this is announced is actually from God himself in Isaiah chapter 45 where he says, I am Yahweh, and there's no other. Besides me, there is no God. From the rising of the sun to its setting, there is none besides me. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. And in fact, as God acts in history, he acts in order to reveal this reality. In a conversation between Moses and Pharaoh in Exodus in chapter 8, Moses tells Pharaoh that God is going to act to judge Egypt and redeem Israel in order that you may know that there is no one like Yahweh our God. And as he redeems Israel and he begins to work through them in history, Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8 is acutely aware of this reality that God works through Israel so that all the peoples of the earth may know that Yahweh is God, there is no other. This is why over and over the refrain of the scriptures is a call to all peoples everywhere as we see in Psalm 148 to worship the Lord. Praise the name of Yahweh, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. This is the axiomatic truth of scripture, that there is one God. He is absolutely, entirely unique. He is solitary and self-existent. He alone deserves to judge the world. He alone is worthy of your worship because he alone is sovereign. In Zephaniah in chapter 2, we get a remarkable picture of God's sovereignty. As we study this text this morning, we're going to see that in Zephaniah chapter 2, God's word reveals to us three particular ways that God is sovereign over his world. Three ways that God reveals his sovereignty over his world. Let's study this text together beginning in chapter 2, verse 5. And what we see is the first thing is that God is sovereign over all people. God is sovereign over all people, and that's really what is on display in chapter 2, verse 5, down to the end of chapter 2, that God is absolutely sovereign over all people, and he reveals this in his judgment of all the peoples of the earth. That's what we just read in chapter 2, that God is going to judge all the peoples of the earth. I want to go through the text kind of as an overview, and then we'll pull out a few observations from the text together. So let's just start in verse 5, where the announcement begins. In verse 5, woe to you. That's prophetic language that God is going to announce judgment. Where is this judgment directed? Well, verse 5 says, Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Carathites. The Carathites is an old term for those people originating from Crete, which is probably the geographical origin of the Philistines. And in fact, God then specifically addresses the Philistines who live in the land of Canaan on the seacoast of Israel. God is going to judge them. Notice what he promises in verse 5. I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. That is complete annihilation, comprehensive judgment. And God continues to announce judgment on the peoples of the earth in verse 8, where he redirects his attention to Moab and Ammon, and says in verse 9, As I live, declares Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom, and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. That's comprehensive judgment on the surrounding peoples around Israel. 
And God goes further in verse 12 where we get this little insight into the extent of God's judgment. Notice verse 12, which reads, You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. Now the Cushites, that's the region south of Egypt, so Ethiopia and modern Sudan. And it's often used, this, this language of the Cushites is used in scripture to speak of people far beyond the borders of Israel who often Israel would have no communication or interaction with. And yet God's judgment is not just localized around the region of Israel, but it's over all the peoples of the earth, the far-flung places of the earth. God's judgment stretches everywhere. He's totally sovereign over everyone. And then he brings this announcement of his universal judgment to a culmination in verse 13 where he says he'll stretch out his hand to the north and destroy Assyria and he'll make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. There's two ways in which this particular passage really brings this chapter to a culmination. One of those is that the last people that God addresses in this chapter is the most powerful people in this day. The Assyrian nation in the time when Zephaniah prophesied in the 7th century BCE is the most powerful global force in the ancient world. They have a multi-international empire. They are absolutely extravagant in their slaughter and their luxury as they plundered the surrounding peoples. Archaeology has discovered that their castles, or rather their palaces, we would probably prefer to say, were absolutely extravagant and demonstrated technological advances beyond any of their neighbors. What they reveal is that the palaces were grand, filled with paneling of cedar and wood from around the world, containing huge statues of winged bulls and lions and reliefs painted in bright colors all around the palace that depicted the victorious campaigns of the kings and hunting scenes just to show the kind of luxury that they lived in. And that kind of nation, the most sophisticated, advanced, powerful nation is the one that God culminates on in verse 14 where he says, herds will lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog, which are not animals of prey. That is just wild, wandering little hedgehogs are going to be able to cozy up in the bed the king now occupies because God is going to bring judgment and that place will be empty. It will be a wasteland, as God says in verse 15, a lair for wild beasts. So it's the culmination because God is driving towards his climax where he says even the most sophisticated, advanced, and lofty peoples in the world will be brought low before the judgment of God because God is the divine, sovereign judge over all people. But there's a second way in which this text is the culmination of the chapter, and that is it's the culmination of the geographical extent of God's judgment. Did you notice there are four people groups God addresses this judgment towards, and they represent the four directions of the earth? You notice the first people he addresses in verse 5 are those people on the seacoast. That's those to the west of Israel. Then verse 8 and 9 are about Moab and Ammon. Those are people groups who lie to the east of Israel across the Jordan. Then verse 12, the Cushites, those are the peoples that are south of Israel. And finally, verse 13, God will also stretch his hand to the north. North, east, southwest, comprehensive, universal. God is the absolute divine sovereign judge over everyone, everywhere. No one escapes his judgment. There's nowhere you can hide. Would you go to the heavens? Would you go to the bottom of the sea? There he is, the divine sovereign judge who will bring everyone before his throne. This is why Psalm 96 declares, say among the nations, Yahweh reigns. Yes, the world is established. It will never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. All people everywhere will come before the judgment seat of this God. Now that's an astonishing claim. It should humble us, but I think in the course of 
seeing and understanding the teaching of Scripture regarding the judgment of God, there are questions that arise, aren't there? Are there not? In the course of my ministry, I've discovered one of the quickest questions to arise in people's minds when they hear this teaching from the Scriptures is, what about these people beyond Israel who don't know much about Israel's God? How, why would God judge them? Or the way the question is usually posed in the 21st century in the church is, what about people who haven't heard the gospel? Will God judge people and condemn them for not believing in a Christ whom they have not heard of? It's a legitimate question. And the place to go with legitimate questions is to the scriptures, which has divine answers. And in fact, I think the best place to go, kind of the classic location to go to begin to answer this question, of course, scripture has much to say of this, but a concise location to go to to answer this question is to listen to the Apostle Paul. Paul, who himself, in Romans chapter 15, says his ambition is to go to Spain because he wants to proclaim the gospel in places where he's not yet been named. And so let's ask Paul, in your mind, because you think it's so important to get the gospel to every people group, every language on the planet, what happens to those peoples if they don't hear of Christ? And Paul's answer for us is in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2, and I think it's worth looking at those texts for just a moment. We'll look in Romans chapter 1 first, and we'll see two truths in Romans chapter 1. In Romans 1 and 2, Paul is going to give us two bases upon which God will judge all the peoples of the earth, even those who haven't heard the gospel. So in Romans chapter 1, we see that God has revealed the truth about God in creation. And upon that basis, all people will give an account to God. Look at the screen. We'll read this from Romans in chapter 1. Paul says, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So Paul teaches that God has revealed enough of the truth of the creator in the created world that all people know there is a God. And they're responsible for the revelation of God in the natural creation. Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God. But the twin truth that goes with this reality that God's revealed himself in the created world is that all people everywhere suppress that truth and unrighteousness and exchange the truth about God to worship the creation instead. Notice the next sentence where Paul continues and says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see these two truths? One, that God has revealed himself in creation so all people are accountable for the reality that God has revealed himself in creation. And all people naturally in their sins suppress that truth and exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship creation rather than the creator. But there's a second basis upon which God will bring all peoples to judgment. That is, not only has he revealed himself in creation, he has also revealed his moral law written on the human heart. That's the second basis that Paul teaches to us in Romans in chapter 2. Where he says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Why is that? Why are Gentiles a law to themselves, though they don't have the revelation, the special revelation of God's law in the scriptures? That's because they show the work of the law is written on their hearts. 
while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So God has written his law on the heart. It's revealed in the moral conscience that every human being has. Every human being has a conscience. The conscience is the soul's warning system as pain is the body's warning system. My young one-year-old son puts his fingers in between the door and his sister slams it and he says, ouch, and he learns, don't put your fingers in the door when your sister's in a hurry. So as pain is the body's warning system that instructs us, so the conscience is the soul's warning system that instructs us when we violated God's moral law. So our conscience tells us, you have done something wrong, ouch, you feel guilt in your conscience. Every human being has the law of God written on their conscience. Now their conscience is muddied by sin. Our conscience is like a window that has been muddied up, so it allows some light in, it allows some truth of God's moral law in, and we're convicted when we do things we know are wrong, but every human conscience is muddied up and is not a perfect revelation of God's moral law. But the extent to which we have a functioning conscience that reveals God's moral law, we will be held accountable before God on the day that God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. That is, God is going to hold you accountable for every way you have violated his moral law that's been written on your heart. And a classic way to understand this text is through a little illustration of the divine recorder. That is, imagine that God had a recording device that he tied around the neck of every human being. And the way this recording device works is that every time you pass a moral judgment, either you think in your mind or say with your lips, you shouldn't, whatever, fill in the blank, be vindictive, lie, chill, steep, be, be immoral, be unreliable, whatever moral judgments you pass off, this recording device picks that up. And then as you go through your life, it also records every time you violate that standard both in your actions, your words, and even your thoughts. Well, on the day of Christ Jesus, God could simply lift that recording device off your neck, play it back to you, and on the basis of the way you have violated God's moral law written on your heart, you would be accountable before God, and you would be guilty before the holy God of the universe. What Paul is teaching is that all people everywhere, both have the revelation of God in creation, which they suppress in unrighteousness, and they have the law of God written on their heart, which they violate every day. All people everywhere stand in need of the gospel, and apart from the gospel, no one will be saved. And in fact, you might say, well, that's the New Testament. What about the Old Testament? What about these angry prophets? The angry prophets of Israel just seem like they're just shouting at all the Gentiles around them. But if you read the prophets closely and you listen to the message they convey, you will find that the prophets accuse the Gentile nations on the same basis that Paul accuses the Gentiles in his day. For suppressing the truth of God in creation and for violating the moral law written on the heart. As we go back to Zephaniah chapter 2, we find that Zephaniah in particular zeroes in on what Paul teaches in Romans 1, that all people have exchanged the truth about God and have worshipped idols instead. Some of the other prophets hone in on the particular sinful acts that Gentile nations engage in by which they violate the law of God written on their heart. Amos chapter 1, for instance. You'll notice that Zephaniah addresses the Moabites in chapter 2, verse 8. Well, in Amos chapter 1, verse 13, Amos singles out particular ways that Moab has sinned. He accuses them of murdering women and children. 
Some of the prophets zero in on this violating the law of God, but Zephaniah, I want you to note, and we'll just look at a couple verses, zeroes in on the reality that all people everywhere suppress and exchange the truth of God revealed in the created world. Notice in chapter two, look at, let's look at verse 10. God says he's bringing judgment on Moab. He says this will be their lot in return for their pride because they raised themselves up and taunted and boasted against the people of Yahweh of hosts. They exchanged the truth about God and exalted themselves instead. Then down in verse 15, God's word to Assyria. This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. The sin of exchanging the truth about God and exalting oneself. All of this is fundamental and undergirds the reality we find in verse 11 that's ever present in all nations of the earth, the worship of false gods rather than the true God. So verse 11 says, Yahweh will be awesome against them. He will famish all the gods of the earth. This is the basic reality upon which God is going to bring the nations to judgment for exchanging the truth of of God for a lie and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. This is why Paul is eager to get the gospel everywhere. This is why if we can go back for a second to Psalm 96, we find that Psalm 96 says that we have to say among the nations the Lord reigns. You have to declare the truth of God to all the nations because apart from the knowledge of the true God through his scriptures, the gospel that God has sent his son into the world to die for the nations, no one can be saved. Which is why we send missionaries. It's why when you go into the ministry tables, you will find that we send missionaries all over the world because we believe every person on the earth needs to hear of Jesus. And that's why we try to equip you to go across the street and share the gospel with your neighbors because if you live in Washington, D.C., you don't have to go very far to find people who do not know Jesus. But the message of the scripture is that God is a sovereign judge over all people everywhere. He's going to bring judgment and he is going to bring salvation through his people to the nations, which leads us to the second point. We've seen that God is sovereign over all people, but the second truth that we see in Zephaniah is as we transition to chapter three, God is particularly sovereign over his people. Solomon told us in 1 Kings chapter eight that God is working through Israel so all the nations of the earth can know that Yahweh is God and there is no other, but there's a problem. The problem is that in chapter three, verse one, you'll notice God says, woe to her who is rebellious and defiled. That's, that is the same prophetic denunciation, the same prophetic cry of condemnation that God announced in verse five of chapter two against all the nations. God is now announcing against his own people, Israel, woe to her who's rebellious and defiled, who's defiled by her sin, who has been privileged to receive revelation of the true God and has turned her back on him. So the way that the prophet Zephaniah constructs his prophecy as we saw last week in chapter one, he begins by examining Israel, then turns to say, I'm going to judge all the nations. There's gonna be a day in which I make everything right. And Israel had been the victim of injustice. And it should be good news that there is a day in which God is going to right every wrong in the world and no injustice will be left untouched. But then as he comes back to Israel, he says, but that's not necessarily good news for you because you have been defiled yourself. And in fact, your sin is worse. You notice if you trace with me in chapters two, three, and four, God details what particular sins he's concerned about. Notice in chapter three, verse two, he condemns four particular sins of Israel. Verse two, God says, 
She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in Yahweh. She does not draw near to her God. And if you'll pause for a second and just examine the particular sins God calls out in this text, you'll notice there's a progression. That is, this is the way that God wants his people to draw near to him. This is the relationship he wants with you. To listen to his voice. To hear the truth of scripture. To hear the proclamation of God's word and to to hear it and then to receive correction. That is, as God's word comes to you and confronts your sin. And humbles your pride. And exposes your arrogance and your self-deceit. To receive that correction. To receive that confrontation. And then trust in the Lord to receive the reality that yes, I have sinned against this God, yes, I am guilty before a divine judge, I do deserve to be punished for my sins, and yet this God has simultaneously provided a way of escape, a way of salvation, a way of mercy, a way of acceptance, and to trust him that his way of salvation is complete, it's not based on something that I would do for him, it's based entirely on God's sovereign act to make a way to receive me and to trust him. And because you trust in this God's act to provide salvation to you, you can now draw near to him with a heart full of gladness, with joy that this God is so holy, he sees and exposes all of your sin, and he's so loving and so kind, he endured the punishment that sin deserves himself so that he can draw you in. God wants you to hear, to accept, to trust, and draw near to him. And the reason he's condemning Israel is because they did not do that. So having condemned these four sins, he then goes further in verses three and four and he begins to examine individuals, offices of Israel that were supposed to lead the people in this lifestyle of approaching God. You notice verse three, he says, her officials within her are roaring lions, that is they're seeking someone to devour, to exploit people. And her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till morning. That is, they're sneaking around, they're devouring people, they leave nothing behind. Verse four, her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Fickle in the sense they're unreliable. They don't give you reliably the word that God gave to them. They make up their own words and so treacherously deceive people away from God instead of towards him. Then finally, her priests profane what is holy because they don't exalt God, they don't revere God, they exalt themselves and so do violence to the law. Now notice carefully the way that this condemnation of Israel is structured. There's a fourfold condemnation of their sin and a fourfold condemnation of the offices in Israel. It's structured to match the fourfold condemnation of the Gentile nations. God condemns four Gentile nations. Then he turns to Israel, four sins, four offices. He's communicating that just as comprehensive as his judgment will be over all the nations, his judgment over his own people who say they trust him, who say they love him, will be just as thorough, just as absolute, if anything, more so. The reason his judgment on his people will be so absolute, so rigorous, so thorough, is explained to us in verse five, where God says, Yahweh within her, he is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning, he shows forth his justice. Each dawn, he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. That is, he's telling Israel, God has privileged you to reveal the truth of himself to you. He's revealed himself through his word, through his actions, through his faithfulness, through all that you have been exposed to. He's revealed the truth of him. He's not misled you. He's not misguided you. 
And it is with this God that you have to deal. This God who has revealed himself. And then he goes even further and says, I've acted. I've given you every possible chance. So verse 6 he says, I've cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I've laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. And I said, surely now you'll fear me. Surely now you'll accept correction, then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. Do you get what God is saying? He's telling Israel, in the course of your history, I've sent you prophets who have declared denunciations against the surrounding nations for their sins, and I've acted upon it. I've given you every evidence that I'm serious about judging sin. For example, we read in... Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 13 and following, that God was going to bring down Assyria. And in fact, just a few decades later, he did just that. In 612, the walls of Nineveh came tumbling down as a Babylonian army came sweeping through Assyria and destroyed Nineveh. God spoke and brought it to pass. And now he's saying, I gave you every warning shot that I possibly could have. If you don't pull up, if you do not lay down your weapons and stop fighting against me and give your life back to me, there will be nothing left but a final judgment. Because he says at the end of verse 7, though I gave them every chance, they were all the more eager to make all their deeds corrupt. A fascinating little wordplay in verse 7 all the more eager, literally, as they got up early in the morning to make their deeds corrupt. In spite of all the revelation, in spite of every warning shot, they got up early, excited, eager to ignore God and pursue sin. And I think the question for us as people who profess to love Jesus Christ is to ask, what do you get up early for? What are you eager for? What do you love God wants his people to hear his voice, to accept his correction, to trust in him and draw near to him, to love him, to have zeal for him, to have joy in him. And God's calling us and saying, every warning shot in your life, every time you have recognized that God's knocking on my conscience and telling me you're wrong, pull up, pull up, pull up, now is the time. To turn from sin and to come close to Christ. Because his word tells us that there is a day in which warning shots will cease And all that will be left is a final day. We see in verse eight. Therefore, wait for me, declares Yahweh, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. This God is absolutely sovereign over all people, particularly his people who he is zealous for zealous for their holiness, zealous for their hearts to love him. The final thing that we see in this text, the final display of God's sovereignty is that this God who is going to judge is also a God who is zealous to redeem a people for his name, redeem a people who love him. And in fact, he is going to sovereignly accomplish that. As we go through the book of Zephaniah, starts with darkness as the judgment of God is announced. But as you read through the book and you listen closely, slowly there begins to be an echo that grows and grows and grows into a triumphant chorus that explodes in the end of chapter three with the joy of God and his sovereign salvation of his people Israel and a people from every nation and language in the world. And we're going to get there next week. 
But this week, I think it would be helpful to conclude our study of this passage with the way, studying the way that echo begins to grow and grow and grow, because indeed it does just that through chapter two. I want you to notice with me some of the ways that God begins to whisper about the salvation he's going to sovereignly achieve, and even in chapter two, in the midst of his announcement of judgment. Go back to the beginning of chapter two where we started in verse five. And look in your Bibles at chapter 2 and verse 5 of Zephaniah. And notice something in this text. God says, Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Carathites. The word of Yahweh is against you. But who's it against? It's against Canaan. That's interesting. That probably doesn't ring any bells because Canaan's a common word. We know that word. That's the land that God promised to Abraham and his descendants. And yet, It should ring bells if we realize that that was not the word that the prophet in his time should have been using for that land. Here's what I mean. As Christians, we read the Bible both vertically and horizontally. We read the Bible vertically in that the whole scripture speaks with one unified voice because it's all inspired by one spirit who speaks with a unified voice. All scripture comes from one author, the Holy Spirit. And we read the Bible horizontally because he inspired particular individuals in historical circumstances who spoke to particular people in historical circumstances. And the circumstances in which Zephaniah spoke, Canaan was not the word that was used to refer to that geographical region. It was an antiquated term. So if you read Kings and you read Samuel, you will find that there's no mention of Canaan in those books. It's not the way they referred to that land. And that's when Zephaniah was ministering. It was an antiquated term back from the time of the patriarchs. That's the term God used to promise the land of Canaan to Abraham. So when Zephaniah even announces his condemnation of Canaan, he's triggering to the Israelites, hey, remember, that land of Canaan that you never actually inherited, it's still gonna be yours. God's gonna make good on his promise and though judgment is coming, through judgment, he'll achieve salvation. And that's exactly what he says in verse seven where he promises explicitly that the seacoast will become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah. And on that they'll graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon, they'll lie down at evening. They'll live luxurious lives enjoying the blessing of God. And all this because Yahweh will be mindful of them, which is an incredible little word where mindful is not talking about a mindfulness club at a, you know, a coffee shop in Arlington. Mindfulness is one of the probably 12 different ways that this Hebrew word gets translated in our English versions, but it's a word that just means to visit. So sometimes God visits to judge sin, and sometimes he visits to provide salvation and provide for his people. It's the word that's used in the book of Ruth, when after the famine, God visited his people and into the famine and provided for them, and so Naomi and Ruth came back to Judah. That's the word that's used here, that God is going to remember his covenant with Abraham. He's going to be mindful of that covenant and he's going to visit his people and fulfill his promise and give them the land. And when he restores their fortunes, another incredible little phrase. It's the same phrase that's used at the end of the story of Job. Job chapter 42, you remember the story. Job is a wealthy man who loses everything, maintains his trust in the Lord. In the conclusion of his story, God restores his fortunes. But you'll remember, God restores them even more than he had before. That's the language that's used here, that God is going to fulfill his word, remember his covenant with Abraham, and fulfill his promises to his people even more than his people could have imagined. That's there even in the midst of judgment. And you see another hint of God's promised salvation in the midst of judgment in verse 11. Look down your Bibles. In verse 11, 
where Yahweh promises that he'll be awesome against all the false gods of the, of the earth, and to him shall de- bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. There's gonna be a people all over the world worshiping Yahweh. And the particular little phrase here, the lands of the nations, is an exact parallel to Genesis chapter 10, verse five, which describes the table of nations. That is, after the flood, Noah's three sons had descendants that spread over the face of the earth, the sons of Japheth, which, Japheth, which are supposed to be the progenitors of the people of the far-flung nations, of the far-flung islands and coastlands, farthest away from Israel. That's the phrase that's used here. All the islands of the nations, all of the far-flung people of the earth, all of them, there will be representatives of every people who will worship Yahweh. That's what's echoed here. Even in the prophecies of judgment, God is still telling his people he will fulfill his covenant and Israel will inherit the land and they will enjoy the presence of God. He'll be their God and they'll be his people, but not just Israel, but a blessing will go through them to all the families of the earth and they'll be saved and they'll worship the God of Israel forever and ever. That's why, if you'll notice in verse eight, when God announces that if you do not repent, there is coming a day of judgment, but he says in verse eight, therefore wait for me. In other words, he's saying this is supposed to be good news that his judgment is coming. There's going to be a day when God judges all evil and rights every wrong and there is a select group of people who will come through that judgment out the other side to inherit the earth forever. There is a people who will inherit the blessings of Abraham and enjoy the Lord's presence forever. Who are those people? Well, they are the people in chapter two, verse three, who meet the spiritual requirements, who seek the Lord the humble of the land, who do his just commandments, they will be hidden on the day of the anger of Yahweh. This is where chapter three, verse eight has taken us. This call that there is a sovereign judge who is going to judge all people, particularly his people, and there is a way that you can be hidden in that judgment a way that you can know that you know that when that judgment comes, and it certainly will come, that you will be hidden, you will be shielded, you will find a refuge from it, so you will come out the other side and join the covenantal blessings that God will reign on his people forever and ever. And the question that we should ask to conclude our time this morning is, how can I know that? Because if we are honest, as we have seen, God is going to judge people for exchanging the truth of God for a lie and worshiping and serving the creation rather than the creator, and we have all done that. And he will judge us for violating the law of God written on our hearts, and we've done that too. And he will judge people who have spurned his special revelation, and people in this room, that's probably us too. There is this reality that we have to stand up to that the judgment announced in Zephaniah chapter two and three, if it's really a holy judgment coming on real sins, then it really ought to come on us. But I also want you to see that even in Zephaniah chapter two, there is a whisper that will turn into a triumphant cry soon, but there's a whisper now that says there is a way of salvation. And I want to show that to you just by finishing our study, by noticing the way that God echoes throughout the scriptures about a coming savior. 
the scripture simultaneously announces a coming universal salvation and the prophets in different ways and different times also tell of a particular person who is coming to save people from that judgment. And to get there, I want you to notice the kind of language that the prophet Zephaniah uses to describe judgment in this text. There's a motif that runs through this text. Look at chapter two, verse four. In chapter two, verse four, he says that Ashkelon will become a desolation. That's a key word there. To become a desolation. That is, when God brings his judgment upon a city or upon peoples, they're desolate, they're wasted, they're destroyed. That's a common word in the scriptures, but it's particularly used for God's judgment. And that word gets repeated throughout the rest of this prophecy. You notice down at the end of verse nine, as God turns his attention to Moab, he says, they will be a land possessed by nettles and salt pits, a waste forever. That's that same word. It's translated as waste forever, but it's the same Hebrew word, desolation. And then in chapter 15, God announces that Nineveh and Assyria are going to be a desolation. People will say, what a desolation she has become. This is the end of those who reject the true God. Well, there's one other audience in the prophetic announcement, isn't there? That's three people, three people groups, rather, who are said are going to become a desolation. The final group is the Cushites in verse 12, who the Lord says will be slain. That is, pierced by his sword. They'll be pierced by his sword. Here's the problem. As chapter 3, verse 5 says, God is righteous. And when he gives correction or chastisement, he intends it to bring you to repentance, but if it doesn't bring you to repentance, it will bring you to judgment. But if you read closely the unified voice of the prophets, you will find that the same language that the prophets use to describe God's divine judgment coming upon sinners is also used to describe God's divine judgment coming upon his Savior. One of the most important texts that describe the coming Savior in the Old Testament is, of course, Isaiah 53. And I want you to notice the language that's used to describe this Savior. Isaiah says he is the righteous one. Just as God is righteous and requires that you be righteous, this is the righteous one, my servant, who will make many to be accounted righteous so they can be accepted by God because he will bear their iniquities. And Isaiah goes on to describe as he bears their iniquities, he's bearing the same judgment language that's in Zephaniah. As many are astonished at you, and this word that's translated astonished, it's the same Hebrew word that's translated desolation in Zephaniah chapter two. That is, when this word is a noun, it describes the end of God's judgment, that cities become desolations. And when this word is used as a verb, it describes the way people are shocked and astonished as they see God's judgment come down upon sin. So here Isaiah is announcing that when people behold this Savior, they're gonna be astonished because he'll be marred beyond human appearance, beyond human semblance, so that you can't even tell that he's of the children of man, that is God's judgment will come down on him and you'll see that the judgment of God has fallen on this person. He goes further to describe his receiving God's judgment as being pierced, the same word that's coming down on the Cushites. He's pierced, but for our transgressions, crushed, but for our iniquities. Upon him is the chastisement. That's the chastisement that Israel did not receive in chapter three, verse two. That chastisement, that punishment for sin will fall upon the Savior and thereby bring us peace. As by his wounds, God brings healing to us. You see the prophets speak with one unified voice and they teach of an absolutely unique, solitary, sovereign God who in his great infinite holiness will bring judgment upon sin and in his equally infinite love is willing to endure that judgment for you. 
So that as you examine the rest of Scripture, you see this day of the Lord is really a twofold day. There is coming a day in which God will bring judgment upon all the earth, and the way that you can know that you will be shielded in that day is by looking back 2,000 years ago where the first stage of this judgment was unleashed, not upon sinners, but upon the sinless Son of God who drank the fullness of the wrath of God reserved for the sins of everyone who would ever believe in him. And if you would embrace Christ, if you would hear his voice and receive his correction and trust in him and draw near to him, you would find that you can know that you know that you will be secure in God's final day of judgment. Because when that day comes, you will find that that judge is the very one who already spilled his blood for you. This is the truth of the sovereign God who is more holy than you've ever imagined and more loving than you could even fathom and he's asking you to draw near to him. Let's go before him in prayer. Well, God, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts now to receive the truth of your word. We ask that you would convict us of our sin. We would ask that you would both convict us of the sins of commission, the ways in which we violated your law, and omission, the ways in which we have been our slovenly in our love for you and our, our joy in you and our zeal for you. And we ask that you would comfort us with the truth that Christ has paid for all sins. That Christ is a savior for all time, able to save to the uttermost all who draw near to God through him. Lord, give us great joy, not in ourselves, but in knowing Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. And now, for a parting word from Pastor Jesse Johnson. Thank you for joining us today. If you're in the Washington, D.C. area, I would love to see you at Emmanuel Bible Church. Our service times and church information are on our website at ibc.church. For more information about the Master's Seminary and their Washington, D.C. location, go to tms.edu. I hope this resource has been a blessing to you and it helps you seek the Lord daily, serve others around you, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boldness. May the Lord bless you. Thank you.